electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and it is a big day for Apple, whose shares are down again, as China could reportedly widen their iPhone ban to state-owned enterprises. Plus, this all comes as Chinese rival Huawei launches its own new high-end phone. We're live in Beijing with more details momentarily. And with Apple shares having their worst two-day drop in nearly three years now, our technician says Apple has been overhyped for nearly a year. He'll tell us just how how low shares have to go to find support here. Plus, as energies gain consumer discretionaries pain, a raft of warnings for the restaurant and other consumer stocks as gas prices are at a seasonal high we haven't seen in more than a decade. Before that, though, let's get the very latest on these markets. Kind of a mixed bag, Dom Chu. It is, and it's much more value-oriented in the green and then tech-oriented in the red, much like your outfit today. So let's talk a little bit about what's driving the action so far right now. If the Dow Industrials are up about two-tenths of one percent at 63 points, 34,508. The opposite end of the spectrum is the Nasdaq Composite, which is down over a percent, which is off-session lows right now. It's a 152-point decline. You can see there are 13,721 for the Composite Index. And the S&P 500 broadly overall somewhere in the middle, down one-third of one percent or 15 points, 44.49 the last trade. At the highs of the session, we were still down 10 points and down roughly 35 at the lows. That gives you an idea of the trading range so far today. Now, with regard to that technology trade, Kelly mentioned some of that negativity around the possibility China could actually crack down on Apple iPhone usage. But it's also the possibility that it might extend to just foreign made technology in general. That sentiment, Apple and everything else dragging the chip complex, the semiconductors lower, broadly speaking, among the worst performing chip stocks in the S&P 500 today, Corvo, Skyworks Solutions, Qualcomm, Lam Research on the equipment side of things, all down roughly 3.5% to 7.5% so far. And the big ETF that tracks it, the ticker SMH, off 2.5% itself. So watch those semiconductor trades. Remember, some people consider it a possible leading indicator in technology. And then that brings us to the stock of the day, which is Apple, as Kelly points out. The most important stock, arguably, in the market here in the United States, off about 3.5%, following up on 3.5% declines yesterday all on this sentiment around what China does. Remember, China is a very big market for Apple. But to put things in context, this is the year. It had a pretty much straight line higher through two-thirds of the year so far. And even with the drops today, we are still down roughly 4% from the record highs that we saw. So, yes, big two-day drop. And it's significant, but it's still 4% away from record highs. It causes this bull bear debate, Kelly, about whether Apple has gone maybe too far too fast and just how big a pullback could be. We've got many aspects of that discussion today. Dom, thank you very much. Now, is the China iPhone ban, at least for government officials, a sign that a broader crackdown on U.S. corporations might be coming? While officials say the two nations aren't decoupling, China has also banned Micron from vital infrastructure projects and banned Tesla cars from high-level government meetings. Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing for us with the very latest. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Kelly. Well, it's still unclear just how expansive this directive is or will be. Uh, The government hasn't commented and nor has Apple. 
Uh, but what we've heard is that there are more and more reports of either state agencies or state companies informing their, their employees that they can't bring their iPhones for use at work and instead uh, they need to perhaps change uh, their iPhones uh, to another product uh, within a month that the focus of this uh, of this directive is uh, for national security reasons, and also that they're focused on um, those who are working in investment, trade, as well as international affairs. Now, the question hasn't been so much about the impact for iPhones uh, sales uh, just because of the, the those who work in the government or government agencies, but uh, whether or not this is really sending a signal uh, from the government that Apple is not politically correct in China anymore. So that's something that we're watching uh, very closely. Uh, we've talked to some Apple um, iPhone distributors, and they said that as of right now, Apple's bigger problem is the new Huawei phone, because the Huawei uh, phone that was just released is called the, the Mate 60 Pro, and it was released when U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo was in town. Uh, the specs are very unclear. Uh, the company has been a, a bit circumspect about them. But what's interesting is that it's running as if it's a 5G phone. Now, the state media has been uh, kind of touting this as uh, a poke in the eye to the U.S. And even CCTV has been uh, uh, posting memes that uh, have been turned into phone cases that you could buy on Taobao, Kelly, but are actually showing Raimondo as a Huawei ambassador, they say. Wow. Okay. So uh, let's take this a little bit further. Um, how significant is the Huawei phone launch, Eunice? Just uh, tell us, give us a little bit more about how much excitement is there among the Chinese customer base? Well, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, in terms of the excitement from an official level, state media definitely has been playing it up. There have been a lot of stories about how uh, there, there may be like 800,000 sales. We don't really know the number for sure um, in terms of the, the phones. Uh, there's been a lot of excitement there. But it's, it's unclear as to whether or not the public really uh, likes this phone or not. Because I, I mentioned that some of those memes that have been uh, created online um, there have actually been people who've been co-opting the memes because uh, Huawei has said uh, we are far ahead in their technology. And there are a lot of folks who say, you know, they're, they're like kind of posting it, but as a sarcastic way to say that there's no way that Huawei um, has been able to make this new phone without the use of foreign technology. Mm. And that is definitely the sentiment that um, we've heard a lot. Uh, within the tech community here. Quick last question, Eunice, as well. What strikes me about the move that China's making against Apple in particular, and they say all foreign phones, but let's just go ahead and, and say it's Apple, yeah. is that China produces so many of Apple's products, it would seem that this would be the last place they'd want to go to potentially shoot themselves in the foot. I'm just curious for your reaction to that. Yeah. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the logic that we would previously always... Uh, believe and, and put out there is that at the end of the day, the Chinese are very practical and that they don't want to see a lot of job losses. And that probably is still the case, or at least there hasn't been any signs that this is going to get so wider that people are picking up and like, you know, crushing their iPhones or anything like that. But, but what's different about the uh, administration, the Xi Jinping administration, is that we have now seen several examples of where uh, the president has um, put national security over the, the, the economy yes. in a lot of the decision making. And so that's where kind of people are sort of wondering, 
uh, where this is all going. Right. A different leader might have stepped back uh, from this one, but but not him uh, and not this time and not in other cases as well. Eunice, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. Our Eunice Yoon reporting from Beijing. Well, is Apple finally breaking? That's what Wolf Research is asking in its latest technical analysis. But my next guest might argue Apple has been broken for nearly a year, generating negative alpha for the tech sector. So what's the next support level he's watching? Joining me now is Carter Worth, Worth Charting founder and CEO. It's been such a good stock this year, uh, Carter. I know, such a strange thing, because obviously performance is performance, and you just add it up, and it is what it is. But relative performance is also not only important, it's in many ways, if you are uh, benchmarked to an index, uh, it's the only thing that matters. And what we know, ironically, is that Apple's relative performance to its peers, to the tech sector, peaked almost a year ago. In fact, it was the last week in September of 2022. Apple, since then, and you can see it on this chart, right, has been underperforming uh, the entire S&P 500 sector. So socks, for instance, since September 27th, the semis are up almost 50%. The tech sector is up more than 40. Apple's up only 16. In fact, since September a year ago, IBM is beating Apple. Oracle's up 100%. Apple has been a bad pick, despite being up, because it's all about what one could have done, opportunity costs. Wow. And, and now, obviously, this news-related uh, drop and gap today, I just think you, you don't want to be there. I'm a seller. I guess, and maybe what this is a reminder of is that just starting on Jan 1 is really not the whole story. Um, you know, it's maybe true more than, than ever, uh, given what's happened with stocks kind of selling off right into the end of the year and then rebounding right at the start of this year. So what would you say about Apple now for levels of support? We're down 7% in two days, uh, but still only a few percentage points from literally the all-time highs. Well, that's right. And so, the, if you look at the absolute chart, the, the very uh, strong advance from its October lows, uh, the question is, is this enough of a correction? The stock was fairly steep and uncorrected, again, all the while underperforming. But at this point, is this setback, this dip, drop, decline, correction, drawdown, sell-off, you choose the word, is this enough to correct a very steep ascent? I, suppose, I, I would say no. And if it's not, so so in other words, it's almost like if we if Apple shares fall enough, then then that correction will will you know be yeah you you can you can tell me but so we're kind of in the middle where it's really not quite um it's not sharp enough yet. I, that's my thing. It has not expunged enough of the sort of love. Expunged <laughs> is the word I was looking I for. Thank you. <laughs> so then uh, we showed Apple, we showed the tech spider. Um, obviously, it feels to a lot of us like the story is fundamentally driven. But do you think there's something more going on here for Apple, for the tech sector? What do you think? Well, I mean, there's so many ways. That, uh, there are a lot of people that would consider Apple no longer a growth stock, and therefore, does it deserve the multiples? Nothing to do with the charts, but I mean, that is the big decision that has to be made. We also know that it's a buyback machine. Apple has bought back, I think, some, uh, the amount of stock it's bought back is in size greater than the market cap of basically 400 plus stocks in the S&P. Uh, so, so what? You said, what does that have to do with anything? The truth is, maybe it's rich, maybe it's uh, no longer a growth stock, but here and now, what's the premise for buying a stock that has the following two circumstances? Day-to-day, heavy selling, news-related, and two, a stock that underperforming its peers, underperforming IBM for a year? Uh, not great. Then as a final question, is it IBM? Is it Oracle? Is it old tech? Is it energy? Where do you see more signs of strength and vigor in this market? 
Well, tech, I think Oracle is quite good, and I would expect a good uh, result. That's what the charts indicate for their uh, earnings coming up. Um, energy, we, we, we're sticking with it. Uh, we're in the camp that rates have peaked, uh, and we want to be long energy as an overweight in healthcare. All right, and healthcare, I know I know what healthcare's moved today. <laughs> Stay tuned. We might be talking more about this with UNH leading the Dow on some nice pricing power as well. Carter, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. You bet. Carter Worth, worth charting. Speaking of Apple, Dan Niles says it's now his largest single stock short, partly because of China's ban, which he expects will expand to those state-owned enterprises. That plus Huawei's resurgence, student loan repayments, and no major AI play, he says, will force investors to reassess their positions. We'll ask him about all of it next on Power Lunch around 2 p.m. Eastern. Meantime, shares of Disney, a seven handle, I hear. Wow, there they are just at $80. We pierced below that a little while ago uh, as its carriage dispute with Charter Communications continues. And Disney just released a statement about that fight. Let's turn to Julia Borston. Julia? Kelly Disney responding to the latest from Charter in this escalating war of words around the standoff in Charter and Disney's negotiation. Here is the latest. Disney saying with the U.S. Open, college football, and the start of the NFL season, it's, quote, unfortunate that Charter decided to abandon their consumers, saying, quote, we will not lose sight of what is most important, investing in the highest quality stories, news, and sports for our audience, and saying, quote, the question for Charter is clear. Do you care about your subscribers and what they're telling you they want or not? Disney stands ready to resolve this dispute dispute and to do what's in the best interest of Charter's customers. Now, this comes in response to Charter CEO Chris Winfrey saying that it's going to be Disney that decides if its content is part of their bundle and that they can imagine offering a bundle without sports. Kelly? All right, Julia, thank you. As the saga continues to twist and turn with Monday Night Football approaching, Julia Borston. Coming up, is oil's pain retail's gain? No, is oil's gain retail's pain, she said. Gas prices are high than usual for this time of year, and it could eat into discretionary spending. We'll examine both sides of that story next. Plus, one of the world's largest lithium reserves is sitting in the middle of the Nevada desert with the potential to triple American supplies. But there's a land battle brewing, and the future of battery production in the U.S. hangs in the balance. Jane Wells has that story ahead. As we go to break, here's a look at the markets. And as mentioned a moment ago, the Dow's leading the way with a 52-point gain on some strength, United Health, and other names. The S&P is down four tenths, though, to 44.47. The Nasdaq and the Russell both down 1.1% today as bond yields are roughly unchanged, down a hair, 427. We're back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Energy is the top performing sector so far in the second half of this year, up more than 11 percent. The gains are driven by supply concerns, especially after OPEC Plus started cutting output. And that's pushing up prices at the pump, with the national average of gasoline hitting 3.80 a gallon, according to AAA. And that's actually the highest level for this time of year in more than a decade. Will energy's gains start to chip away at consumer spending and cause some pain for retail? Joining me now with the oil take is Denton Keen Sigrana, Chief Oil Analyst at OPEC, and for retail, Ike Boroshow, Senior Analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Welcome to both of you. Denton, I'll start with you. Yesterday, we spoke with a technical analyst who wasn't so sure if oil could run much higher from here. Um, what do you think? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if it goes much higher because these levels alone are uh, a little causing a little more pain than we're used to. Sure, absolutely. And yeah, we're at the highest levels of the year, trailing off just a little bit today. But all things considered, with the supply cuts, um, U.S. inventories have drawn in each of the past four weeks to the tune of also, yeah, we could still see some more upside for, for crude oil. Uh, as that pertains to retail gasoline, though, we're kind of fortunate in the time of year in that we're starting, vacations are over, no one's really clamoring for gasoline, so demand should start to trail lower as well. WTI crude is around $86 a barrel right now. You think we go much higher than here? You know, we we know the risks. Inventories are low. A hurricane could hit. Prices could spike for something like that. But what would it take to really drive us upwards of $100 a barrel? Yeah, I think you need some sort of event that's probably unforeseen right now, whether that's one of the other OPEC nations running into a, a real issue with production. Maybe maybe it's Libya. Maybe it's Iraq. Maybe it's Nigeria, which always have their, their struggles here and there. But for the most part, outside of a hurricane, God forbid, another war, um, you know, I, I see a couple dollars more of, of upside, but probably not that much more. What could let's say I'm Joe Biden and I want to get gasoline prices down. What else can I do? I mean, can I turn to U.S. producers, as our, our Pippa Stevens has told us, are almost back to where we were pre-pandemic in terms of output. Um, we've done the SPR releases. What, what else? What other measures are there? Well, one, of the, one thing that's been happening, actually, and the, the Biden EPA has been pretty liberal with these, is, is, uh, is RVP basically switching from summer-grade gasoline to winter-grade gasoline earlier. Hmm. Uh, one was issued for Florida because of the hurricane recently. And then you had one issued for Arizona because they pull gasoline not only from California, but from the east. Uh, and a couple of refineries in El Paso have had some issues. So they've got an EPA waiver, too. So these waivers do help uh, the supply situation with, with gasoline. So I would suspect that considering if there's any more, obviously, storms that impact supply, you'll see more of these waivers. But that's one of the one of the tools in the tool belt. And I guess the other way to ask it is, have we put in the highs for the year? And I'll, I'll put on the hat of energy investors. Now we're obviously going to focus on the consumer kind of anguish from all of this. But energy investors are, are starting to say, OK, this is one part of the market reliably up for the second half of the year. If I could ask you it kind of from that point of view, would you be encouraged the gains could continue or a little bit cautious? Cautious, especially on retail gasoline. We're entering the time of year, like I said, where demand is down a little bit. But also, we're going to be manufacturing a lot of fall and winter grade gasoline. And there's a couple of aspects to that. The formulation for gasoline has these different components. And one of those components is a lot cheaper because you could use more of it in the wintertime than the summertime. That should keep prices low. And also, ethanol is really cheap. Most of the gasoline, gasoline in the United States has about a 10% ethanol component. Ethanol versus some markets is more than a dollar lower. So I think the cheap ethanol could kind of keep retail prices from, from really getting too far out of control. Fascinating. Denton, thank you so much. We appreciate it today. 
Denton Cinquegrana with Opus. You've heard about the forecast for oil and gasoline. What does this mean for retail? Let's ask Ike Borishow. How much pain is it already causing, do you think? Uh, yeah, hey, Kelly. So, look, I don't think it helps, right? It's been a nice tailwind year over year. Um, we've had the low-end consumer under some pressure. It's been an area where there's a little bit of hope, and now you're starting to see those uh, that tailwind kind of turn into a headwind. So, look, the way we kind of look at the consumer right now is, we're kind of running out of tailwinds and, and there's certainly more the consumer catalyst path from here. It's not great. You've got gasoline prices on the rise. You've got credit tightening and delinquencies going up. And then the big, you know, canary in the coal mine or elephant in the room is student loan repayments starting October 1st. So the catalyst path is tough. This is just one of many that we're trying to keep our eyes on. And yet, you know, you've still got to cover the space. So <laughs> especially now that we've digested retail earnings, I'm sure that's done a lot to separate some of the winners from losers. Who are the names that you would stick with even throughout what could be an environment of sticky high oil, uh, gasoline prices? Yeah, look, I, I think if we're talking about who are the winners, where are we sleeping well at night, I think the two, uh, the, the, the two areas we look at is um, the off-price sector. So absolutely outperforming, comps accelerating, market share gains accelerating, the department store pain is their gain, inventory coming their way. So raw stores, Burlington are two of our favorite ideas. And then on the other side, um, you look at a business that's just completely bucking the trend within a slower athletic backdrop, Lululemon. I mean, they have overtaken Nike in terms of their real prominent athletic player globally right now. They're executing across the uh, across the board. And I would say off price and, and Lulu really look uh, really look very good. If you're willing to go down the risk curve a little bit to more recovery names, we think a name like Signet Jewelers, PVH, also very interesting. Signet and PVH. Okay, so, you know, I hear the caution that you're expressing. And, you know, people have just kind of caught up with this idea of no recession. Let's raise our S&P targets. And, of course, the last six weeks have looked a little less comfortable. So at what point do you go from being, you know, a little concerned to a lot more concerned? And, and maybe that's the labor market. I don't know. I mean, look, right now for us, it's a little, it's fairly binary. I think when you look at our group, um, very cyclical group, right? Early cycle group. Valuations are very are very close to trough. Numbers have been cut uh, to the bone, especially on, on earnings revisions this year. But what's the catalyst to get us in here? There's the boogeyman waiting there come October, November, and that's student loans. We're talking about $6 billion, uh, a couple points to comp headwind. And well, the reason I say it's binary is Traffic is pretty stable in the U.S. right now. We're either going to lap this and the consumer is going to show some resiliency or we're going to take a leg down like we saw in March when the low-end consumer fell off a cliff, you know, snap and a bunch of other headwinds hitting them. So I think we're going to wait and see. I think we're going to know a lot come early holiday about, about the next uh, direction of this group. All right. It's fascinating, a point about valuations and kind of where we are as well. Ike, thanks for your time as always. Thanks, Kelly. Ike Borjow with Wells Fargo Securities. Coming up, deal-making is back on the rise with one key metric near its highest level since the start of the pandemic. We'll look at the billions being raised in debt and what's driving all the demand. The exchange is back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Reporters spotted the D.C. grand jury meeting at a courthouse for the first time since it indicted former President Donald Trump. The jury indicted Trump in August on charges related to interference in the 2020 presidential election. Special counsel Jack Smith said the investigation would continue after those charges were announced. Microsoft is teaming up with digital pathology provider Page to create the world's largest AI system to identify cancer. The company said the artificial intelligence model is being trained with billions of images to identify common and rare cancers. The goal is to help doctors who have large caseloads and are short-staffed. And women's soccer pros across Spain are going on strike as their club season begins. The Players Union said today the strikes are in response to the conduct of the Federation's president, who has been suspended for forcibly kissing a player at the end of the World Cup medal ceremony. The union is also seeking better pay for the players. Kelly, back to you. Sensing the opportunity, Tyler. Thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Coming up, the U.S. is sitting on one of the largest lithium reserves in the world. But NASA isn't too keen to share the wealth. Our Jane Wells joins us straight from the source. Jane? Hi, Kelly. I'm in the middle of nowhere, but it could be a very profitable somewhere for lithium. But NASA says, hold on. This area is unique and important. I'll explain why and the tension between the two when we come back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Access to lithium will be crucial as electric vehicles and their batteries command a growing sphere of the auto market. But what if we told you that one of the largest lithium reserves in the world still remains untapped? Our Jane Wells joins us live from Nevada with more. Hi, Jane. Hi, Kelly. Well, that is the hope. I mean, this place looks like it's worthless, but it's actually potentially very, very valuable. Railroad Valley, Nevada could be the site of the largest lithium deposit in North America. A mining company called 3PL Operating has bought the leases here from the federal government, spending over $20 million so far on testing, which indicates there is 20 to 25 million recoverable tons of lithium under the ground here. That would be a massive domestic supply for the EV industry. But NASA says, hold on, the space agency uses this same valley to calibrate optical satellites that provide images on things like crop health and air quality. And it says no other place in America is this good. Foreign sites in Libya and China pose challenges. NASA is so concerned that mining would disrupt the surface of the valley and mess up calibration that it talked to the Bureau of Land Management, which took back about a third of 3PL's claims, an area that may contain the lithium mother load. But is 3PL even certain that much lithium is here? We have 48 wells into this deposit. We have, that's a $20 million data set. We have 1,100 samples that we've tested geochemically. So I'm pretty certain. This is not a matter of figuring out whose role is more important. We're not questioning the importance of what NASA does. Believe me, we're not questioning that. But we also believe what we're going to do is important, and we believe they can coexist. NASA project scientist Hal Mehring tells me, quote, if lithium miners can prove that they can extract the lithium from underneath and not degrade the surface, then we're okay. But since the technology has not been proven at scale, quote, we don't want to be the guinea pig. Meantime, 3PL can dig and test outside the NASA zone. And if it can get permitted, at least in that area, Kelly, they can start getting lithium out of it, along with a bunch of other minerals and metals 
but it's probably going to take four years. This stuff doesn't happen fast. This is fascinating. So NASA's worried because they say this flat span, uh, expanse behind you is indispensable for calibrating the razor-sharp measurements of hundreds of satellites orbiting overhead. So if we disrupt that, then we could cause all these problems with satellites and data and GPS and who knows what else. That's what they're saying. They're saying particularly, this is just a a flat, solid, it's the right color of white for calibration, <laughs> large. They say there's no place like it in the United States. They say NOAA uses this area too. Uh, I asked the Defense Department if they use it too to calibrate their optical satellites. We're talking about optics. I haven't heard back yet. <laughs> Jane, it, this is fascinating, truly, uh, pitting one massively important industry against the other. Thank you so much for bringing us the story, our Jane Wells reporting. Now, lithium prices are actually down about 65% so far this year. So maybe that takes the heat off a little bit. But experts do say we could face a global shortage as soon as 2025. And my next guest is also making big investments in U.S. sources of lithium. Joining me is Tom Jensen, executive chair and co-founder of Fryer Battery, which has planned operations in the U.S. and EU. Good to see you again, Tom. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Pleasure to be here as always. Do you mind weighing in on whether you think they can mine lithium in that flat expanse without disrupting what NASA thinks it needs? Well, so, so the, the supply challenge in, in the battery industry is really linked to the required development of solar and wind energy, which needs to 20-fold from current levels if we're going to stay within the climate boundaries. And to balance out this, we need huge amounts of storage capacity in the form of lithium-ion batteries. And this is the most advanced storage technology on the planet. And we have deployed roughly two terawatt hours globally of it. And we need to deploy roughly 200 terawatt hours of it globally to stay within the same climate boundaries. The raw materials required for this uh, probably needs to be between six and seven million tons when it comes to lithium. Mm -hmm. And other raw material sources probably need to tenfold in installed mining and processing capacity. Now, the required battery capacity required when it comes to lithium is probably only 20% of globally proven reserves. Now, we don't have any specific opinion on the NASA uh, issue in uh, what you just mentioned, but I do think it's fair to say that uh, 20 years ago, nobody really believed that oil and gas reserves uh, and the shale reserves, particularly in the U.S., were going to be an as large uh, of a source of oil and gas production as it is today. Sure. Similarly, uh, your homo sapiens will find ways in which to extract more lithium and do it in different ways in different sources. So I don't think long term there is going to be a supply glut for lithium. Well, Medium it, term or short term, we might see some temporary bottlenecks, but we've come down from the high prices of last year. I suppose that, you know, and I remember when we spoke, I, I believe you're working in North Carolina, correct me if I'm wrong, but that that had previously been like a lithium capital of the world and, and maybe could be once again. So kind of to your point about oil and gas, I'm happy to bet on engineering ingenuity. And they're either going to come up with a way to do this without disrupting the service, or I think, well, then they'll go to North Carolina and these other regions and get it there. Why can't we get the supplies that we need from expanses other than this Nevada one that we need to leave flat and undisturbed? Well, so I do think, as mentioned, that we will find new ways in which to extract lithium and new ways to process it. An important case in point beyond, uh, beyond what we just mentioned is the fact of urban mining or recycling. As we come to the end of this decade and we have millions and millions of batteries deployed, some of these batteries will come to their end of their life, and then they will be 
a large source of urban mining, which will, of course, reduce the pressure on new resources. As an example, in, in the Scandinavian region, we see the emergence of a battery belt from Finland in the east all the way through Sweden and Norway in the west, mm. uh, where we have uh, raw materials in the form of lithium and other sort of critical minerals and metals, all the way through to battery cells and applications and recycling activities. In the U.S., a similar battery belt is developing uh, from Michigan in the north all the way through to the Carolinas and in Georgia, where we are actually, Kelly, uh, and where our Giga America site is, is developing. We are spurred in, in large uh, ways by the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. All, and that is happening across the board, all the way from lithium mining through processing, through battery cell and application development, as well as recycling facilities. Yeah. So we're quite excited about uh, the opportunity. And the U.S. is, again, at the forefront of that development. No, and again, that's why it's a good reminder. It's not just Nevada where we have these projects underway. Georgia, as you mentioned, and, and many other parts as well. Tom, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Tom Jensen with Fryer. You too. Still ahead. I remember, uh, remember back when I used character AI to bring back those dead economists like John Maynard Keynes. The CEO has now made it to the Time 100 list of the most influential people in this space, and he'll join us for an exclusive interview coming up. In the meantime, check out the Dow leaders today with Intel, actually one of the strongest performers, up 3% as other parts of the semiconductor space that are very China-exposed struggle. And healthcare is a real theme as well. Merck, United Health, Amgen, J&J, all helping the Dow into the blue today. As the Wall Street Journal reports, health insurance costs are climbing at the steepest rate in years. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. You would think that these high borrowing rates would deter companies from wanting to take on new debt right now. But in fact, they are flooding into the debt market. Seema Modi is here with that story. What's going on, Seema? A lot of activity, Kelly. is Following a summer lag, 31 corporate debt deals have been announced just this week. That's totaling $54 billion, making it one of the highest volume weeks of the year. The duration of the deals announced this week are mostly less than five years. So on the shorter end of the curve, a sign that corporations are anticipating that rate will fall at some point. And demand has been strong. If you look at the type of deals coming to market in September, on average, three times oversubscribed, according to Chris Reich at Credit Flow Research. Fund managers tell us relatively tight credit spreads are incentivizing new deals, currently at the lows hit in March of last year when the Fed started raising rates, as well as the prospect of more deal activity. Uh, Philip Morris, Volkswagen, Nestle, BHP Billiton are among the companies announcing new bond deals this week. So really across different sectors, it's not really uh, concentrated in one area, Kelly. And it's what you said that, okay, yes, the Fed's raised rates to 5%, but if that spread is narrowing because because people are a little more optimistic now. They might not have, you know, they, this is the most privileged part of the business world, the ones who can tap corporate debt markets right now. That's absolutely right. Having covered corporate debt issuance since the onset of the pandemic, when we saw an overwhelming number of travel and hospitality names, specifically the cruise lines, issue new debt, there really tends to be these pockets of opportunity. When you see equities uh, a bit more stable, credit spreads are tight, and it also tends to come ahead of a big event. Well, we're two weeks away from a Fed meeting, and next week, a deluge of economic data, including the inflation report on Wednesday. So that perhaps is what is uh, precipitating this type of move we're seeing in the debt market. But it's expected to continue as it, well. It's a great point. I also wonder, you mentioned some of it's a little bit more short term, and maybe that's because companies want to be opportunistic if rates do fall, which you know, I appreciate. But I also wonder if they're forced to. I mean, do they have a sense that, you know, why lock in high rates for such a long, it's kind of the flip side of what you're saying. But is it also that, that borrowers aren't quite sure if they want to commit to that period of time if the economic cycle 
changes for the That's worse. exactly right. Rates may be high, but if you're taking out a three-year deal, a five-year deal, you still have the opportunity to roll over some existing debt or refinance at some point. So it's, uh, it's just taking advantage of these types of opportunities that tend to present themselves. We'll see if we continue to see more. Busier than expected now, that's for sure. Yeah. Seema, thanks. Seema Modi. Still ahead, Bank of America saying this business software company, I bet you cannot guess it, is well positioned to capitalize on AI. They're making it a top pick. They see 20% upside. Tweet me at Kelly C. NBC. If you think you know it, we'll reveal it next. And as we head to break, take a look at Dutch Bros, which is dropping. Well, it was down more than 4%. It's almost erased those now. And this is to the point we were just making. They issued $300 million of Class A stock to help pay down their debt. Interesting. And don't miss an exclusive interview with Goldman CEO David Solomon today on Closing Bell Overtime around 4.15 p.m. Eastern. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Shares of C3AI are down about 12% today after its larger-than-expected operating loss, delaying its path to profitability. Our John Ford spoke with CEO Tom Siebel and other big tech execs about what's next for artificial intelligence. And you've got some. What would you say are the highlights? Uh, well, Kelly, we're getting a flurry of AI announcements this month. C3 announced some industry-specific models on top of those results last night. Investors now have to figure out what companies are going to reap real benefits from artificial intelligence versus those that'll tread water or even lose ground. So I spoke with Intuit CEO Sasan Ghadarzi about that financial software maker's big move yesterday into generative AI with what it calls Intuit Assist. We've invested heavily in our own Intuit financial large language models, and we're training our own large language models on the customer's data because the data does not leave uh, our premise. And in order to provide you with perspectives um, that is helpful to you, uh, I have to be able to uh, provide you recommendations about your business, not general recommendations. So that last layer is really about our own large language models that we've invested in and will continue to invest in that gets trained by your data within our firewalls that helps you with ultimately the recommendations. Now, we do partner uh, with uh, leaders in the Gen AI space, inclusive of open source. You know, We believe that this is uh, very much developing and we wanna continue to partner with those that can enhance our own large language models. I also spoke with Sassine Ghazi, who takes over as Synopsys CEO in January. His company makes software tools for chip design. Now you look into new markets, like automotive, for example. It's a whole new segment due to the sophistication of the, the hardware or the chips into a car. They are becoming a customer of Synopsys. AI is another layer of uh, application where there's a different type of chip that you need in order to accelerate uh, for AI applications for these various markets. So often, Kelly, when you have a shift like this, investors have to try to figure out who's gaining wallet share in engagements because of this trend and whose intellectual property is worth more where they're actually going to get a margin benefit. And that's that's hard work to do. And it seems to me when, you know, do you really want to bet against the likes of Salesforce and some of the big players? Maybe they don't have the cutting edge technology, but they ultimately try to figure out who does it and fold it in. You know, how do any of these smaller players kind of maintain their edge and not just have their their product or their feature become commoditized or something good enough offered by one of the existing incumbents? A challenge now, say for the likes of Salesforce, is 
Benioff has been on this discipline kick where he's like, okay, well, you know, our margins are up, blah, blah, blah. Right. Are investors going to let him buy something substantial now? And AI stuff has been getting a nice valuation. So how much do they have to grow internally? Benioff's going to be making a strong AI case at Dreamforce in just a few days that they have what it takes. That's a great point. And also, it's hard to know in the early days sometimes which of these bets will pay off the most. And if they can't spray money around, they maybe have to be a little bit more judicious. It might be harder to pick the winner. How does China factor into all of this? So when we look at the chip stocks down big today, obviously, they've been running up all year on AI hype. But now they meet a little reality of, well, there's still 30 percent sales exposure to China. This is a market that may be turning a little bit more unfriendly to U.S. tech. Um, I'm just curious how that complicates the investing landscape. I think the story has actually turned in the past year more positive for the U.S. when it comes to AI. Because a year plus ago, the story was China's got this unrestricted access to data. They don't have to worry about civil liberties. They're going to go run in AI. Since then, we've seen the rise of NVIDIA and investors have got a sense of just how valuable their IP is. And there have been these restrictions on China's access to some of those accelerated chips. So now there's a question of, oh, well, maybe actually the way the U.S. companies, both at the chips level and the apps level, have insight into the way Western business and thought really works is going to be an advantage in and of itself. Interesting. And China might not be as well positioned. And they only just, I think, allowed Ernie, the Baidu AI bot, to kind of be used by the public, you know, way later than, than what we've done here. John, thanks. We appreciate it. John Fort following all this for us. A few other AI names also getting attention on the street lately include HubSpot, which Bank of America says is a top AI pick. That was the mystery chart we teased. Technician Craig Johnson of Piper Sandler, meanwhile, says Accenture could come out on top. Yes, consultants seeing 16% upside to the shares from current levels. And Needham's Laura Martin is warning that Apple, which is having a tough day, tough week, could be overcome by the likes of Amazon, Google, and Microsoft thanks to their generative AI potential. And my next guest knows a thing or two about this nascent industry. He's just been named one of Time's 100 most influential people in artificial intelligence. Joining me now is Noam Shazir, Character AI CEO. Noam, good to see you again. Congrats. Hey, great to see you. Thanks. You know, I don't, there's got to be a hundred people in AI. Like, come on, is this everybody? How big is this field? What do you think? It is getting bigger. Like when, when I got started working on these large language models and inventing this field, like in 2016 to 2018, like very few people were excited. I could see this thing was like going, uh, going to be incredibly useful. And uh, it's so good to see like the whole world excited about this like they should be because it is going to provide incredible amounts of value. Let me pick up on the point John was just making about kind of America's approach to uh, rolling out AI versus China's. I mean, what, what do you experience in terms of demand? I don't know if your product is available in China or if you have any kind of opinions on, on the competitive landscape between these two countries. Yeah, I mean, when we first launched, uh, we like traffic started taking off in China for like a few days and we got blocked. But uh, they were not a big fan of the Xi Jinping bot. Um, but, you know, like, so, uh, yeah, win for America. Um, we've got, like, millions of people, like, use, using our site, you know, every day for, like, you know, on average of, uh, of hours. And, you know, a lot of that is, like, entertainment, emotional support, that, uh, that sort of thing. But, like, the big thing about this technology is it is so flexible and so useful that the big value is get it to billions of people and let them invent billions of use cases. And thank God in America we can do that. Yeah, so talk to me about the chip usage that's kind of behind this and powering it. Are you running into any bottlenecks there? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we everybody uh, everybody needs more chips. The more chips you have, the smarter a thing you can train, and the more people you can serve. I mean, we're we're good at doing that, but we are we're still um, you know serving a model that we trained like last year uh, for a couple million dollars and could probably repeat now for like half a million or something. But uh, and the reason is you know we we raised a lot of money. There are delays in getting you know in getting the chips. We're about to ramp up like uh, like crazy on GCP. Thank God and uh, we'll be launching some much, much smarter things uh, in the near future as that uh, as that compute comes online. You guys have been very busy. Some of your most popular characters are a character assistant for productivity, an AI assistant named Stella, a psychologist for mental health issues, creative helper for creative writing, hyperglot for language learning and translations. What differentiates these offerings from what I might get at, you know, some other AI product, especially when you start charging $9.99 a month, as you have since May for kind of the paid subscription tier? Yeah, at this point, the paid is just like faster service, you know, in the case that the site is overloaded, which uh, we've been doing pretty well on uh, recently. So so it is free to everyone to use uh, uh, at this point. Um, and um, yeah, what, what do people get? Well, it's, you know, something that is tuned to uh, tuned to what they like. Um, and it's, you know, there's a huge long tail. People want like lots and lots of things. Like we put up some, you know, some uh, example, something that says psychologist and no one wants to talk to that. They want to, you know, talk to like cartoon characters and, uh, and use that as, uh, you know, as a psychologist and then <laughs> about their day or, uh, you know, it, it's crazy. Like we don't know what other people, what, you know, what the users are going to want to do. And the big magic of this technology is get it out there to the users, make it flexible, yeah. make it intelligent and adaptable and let them do it. Yeah, we used it to talk to Keynes and Hayek and had some fun with it. Um, but when we raised the larger question, uh, like I did with John, of can startups like yours really compete in the long run against big tech companies or do you just become kind of a roll up or something like that? Um, why can't they come out with features similar to yours and, and more or less commoditize your offerings? I mean, we have some incredible, uh, incredible researchers, incredible engineers. Like we, we got a team up there with uh, with everyone or better. Uh, we we are we are hiring like uh, like crazy. We're growing like crazy. Um, yeah, we're we're gonna go to toe to toe with those guys. All right. Well, I don't know. Time does that splashy party for its hundred most influential people. But if they're doing one for for everyone in AI, obviously it should be something you know in the metaverse, don't you think? Yep. Yep. I'll uh, I'll send my uh, digital clone. Uh, I'm too busy coding. Yes, exactly. Your your personal AI assistant, the no the gnome assistant. Thank you so much for joining us today. Congrats again. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure being here. Gnome Shazir from Character AI. That does it for the Exchange. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.